Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 40, Friday's Child. With open hands and hearts, we welcome you to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Freshly returned from another diplomatic mission, I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion, and I have had it about up to here with diplomatic missions to secure mining rights on another planet. Instead, just for today, Ken, I think I'm going to kick back and I'm going to look at the morals, messages, and meanings within Star Trek. You sure you don't want to just have fun with an episode of Star Trek? Oh, could we? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, let me ask you, John, which episode would you like to examine for morals, messages, and meanings today? Well, you know, I'd say something clever, but uh, I guess it all has to depend on the uh, the day of the week on which somebody is listening to this episode, and I would tie it into the title. The title would be Friday's Child. Mm. You may be listening to it on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Monday, but for today, for today, we're talking about Friday's Child. Yeah, it's Friday, and I'm in love with Star Trek. That thing, though, that, okay, so Friday's Child, that's from that thing. That's from mm-hmm. that, that poem. That It that, is from that poem. That we yeah. all kind of know. We all pretty much know what the deal is with the day that we're born. Like, what, what day were you born, John? What day of I the was week? Born, are you ready? I was born on a Sunday. Okay. I, I'm Bonnie Blythe and good and gay. <laughs> no jokes. No jokes. No, no, no jokes. jokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was born and what about on, you, Ken? Uh, Monday. Monday. I'm, I'm fair of face. According to uh, according to the as poem, you are. well, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. You're and welcome. you are Bonnie and Blythe as well. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for just stopping there. And a happy fellow, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy fellow. Yeah, there you go. Friday's um, child, though. So, what's the deal with Friday's child? Well, so it, well, first of all, the episode Friday's Child, as we kind of gave it away in the intro there, uh, Kirk. Spock McCoy and, uh, well, someone who meets an unfortunate end, uh, go to a planet to try to secure mining rights. That, that is the premise of Friday's Child. So mm-hmm. for those of you who are playing along at home, that's the episode that you're watching. Uh, but before we get too much into the story details, yes, we will dig right into trivia. So, Ken, you brought up the poem. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you who don't know, this is an old English poem from which the, uh, the title is derived. And uh, if you'll indulge me here, I'll just read it. Uh, I'm not going to do a dramatic reading. I'm just going to blast through it. Monday's child is fair of face. Tuesday's child is full of grace. Wednesday's child is full of woe. Thursday's child has far to go. Friday's child is loving and giving. Saturday's child works hard for a living. For the child who was born on the Sabbath day is bonnie and blithe and good and gay. So Friday's child is loving and giving, and yeah. that is the 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 child here uh, who plays a uh, a part in this episode. I got to say that's a lot to expect of a baby. It kind of is, you know. I I've I, I heard this poem I, I for the first time when I was very very young. Yes, um, and I, I can't remember exactly when, but it was a long long time ago. And even then, I thought, wow, that this poem is just really unfair yeah. <laughs> you know wednesday is just out of luck and and how dare whoever wrote this poem uh, apply these personality traits to these poor innocent children with not even knowing them um do you ever wonder about the first person who did this stuff i mean this i mean you said it was an old english poem so i mean yeah. this is hundreds of years old right yes yes and i think about things like uh row 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 your boat Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. I mean, we we can sort of track down where somebody like where the music is credited sometimes. But, uh, you know, row, row, row your boat. Really? Somebody wrote that. <laughs> right. Right. And we don't know who. We all know the words. None of us can remember when we heard it. It's the same thing with this. Somebody actually probably did write this at some yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. Well, and, and here's what's interesting. So the version that I read is from the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes. Mm-hmm. And um, the poem, the, the actual lines and, uh, and descriptions have changed a little bit depending on which version of English you're, you're getting this from. And the line about Wednesday's child mm-hmm. has actually been changed into something positive in later versions of this poem. So a- a- everybody is a winner. 
uh, it, depending on which version of the poem you get. <laughs> that's nice. That's, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. I thought you were going to say like the really old English version is like um, like Wednesday. Well, no, Wednesday's <laughs> child suffers hard knocks, but Thursday's child he's got the pox. You know, or something like you know, it's really. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. Really dark. So you know, full of woe is actually a little bit better. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so I, I just right off the bat, I'm going to say the poem really bothers me. It bothers me more than it should. It really does. You know, it started to pick up on that. Let's talk yeah. about something that we love about this. I'm, I'm going to horn in on your trivia thing. We're back. Okay. We're back, baby. Vasquez rocks. Yes, we are. I, so you know, that- somebody should film a sitcom at Vasquez rocks just so I can watch it every week. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, in this episode, you jump back and forth really blatantly, unfortunately, between the the studio set and then the actual location. I mean, there, there are yeah. some shots that are just back to back, and that's unfortunate. But the good thing is we're using different areas of Vasquez rocks. Instead of using the famous rocks, as they call them, that kind of jut out of the ground at a at an odd sharp angle. Although we Instead, do we, we do see those. We we do see those, but most of the action is back. Yeah. Um and that's kind of cool. I'm glad that we get to revisit that. Um some interesting things here about the guest stars, uh the ones that are particularly obvious, but maybe some of you in our audience don't know Julie Newmar. Who wow. plays Elian, yes, yes. She was Catwoman on the Batman series of the 60s. There were three uh, actors who played Catwoman. You had Eartha Kitt, Julie Newmar, and uh, Lee Merriweather in the movie. But Julie Newmar was one of the two TV Catwomen, and uh, she was just great. I, I, you know, I think Julie Newmar as Catwoman left an indelible mark on pretty much every male who watched that show, <laughs> so, including Batman. I love their chemistry. So, uh, but another another guest star to mention here, uh, Teague Andrews, who plays uh, the Klingon in this. He uh, he had a long running stint on the Mod Squad. He was Captain Greer. Wait, so he was. Is yeah? it is it Teague or Tyge? Oh, I thought it was Teague. I thought it was Tyge. Tyge. Okay. I don't know. Well, I'm not. I'm not correcting you. I'm just you know. Let's let's throw them yeah, both yeah. out there. There you go. All right. Take take your pick and. Uh, <laughs> Teague, Tyg, Mr. Andrews, if you want to call ah, that. Mr. Andrews, I like that. There let's, you go. Let's, let's go that way. Well, he played Captain Gray on the Mod Squad, so he was kind of the guy who brought together the Mod Squad. He was not Mod himself. Um, and he also appeared, though, in the incredibly short-lived TV series, The Barbary Coast, starring, do you know who starred in The Barbary Coast? Nope. William Shatner. Really? Yeah. Uh, it ran from late 75 to early 76. Only 14 episodes were made, and I, I'm not even positive that all 14 were aired. Uh, but that was William Shatner's return to series TV. I always assumed that T.J. Hooker was his return to series TV. No, no. Barbary Coast, actually, there are things about it to like, but... Uh, not enough to keep it on the air for a full season. <laughs> Apparently, um, that's not always that's not always a good judge, though, because I mean, um, both Firefly and Max Headroom, twenty minutes into the future, only got like half seasons. Yeah, and true. And there's a tremendous amount to love about both of those. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, it's not it's not necessarily fair to say there wasn't enough. Although seriously, when you only had three channels, if you I can't know. see on for more than you half know. a season, yeah, it's not it's not the best. Um, not the best pedigree. Yeah. A right. um, couple other things to mention here about the development of this particular episode. Uh, there is an original draft floating around out there in which Eliane sacrificed her child. Uh, so that child being Friday's child, who uh, will play a part in the plot line that you will read to us in a moment, Ken. Um, yeah, that had kind of a, a darker turn than what we get in the final episode. Um, Now, we don't have that original draft, but what I do want to draw our listeners' attention to is the uh, the discovered document that we run uh, concurrent with our episodes. So uh, if you go to the website, and uh, you can also follow the link from our Facebook page, every time we post an episode, uh, pretty much every time, we post a discovered document from the Roddenberry Archive. And this one is really interesting. We, uh, we chose this because it fits right into the middle of season two, 
which is kind of where we are. We, we, uh, this episode aired in late 1967. The document is from early 1968, from April of 1968. Um, it's from Gene Roddenberry to everybody, to the production staff. And it's a breakdown of the major characters, so Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and then with kind of a, a couple of special paragraphs there about the other recurring characters like Scotty, Uhura, Chekhov, and then a, uh, a more in-depth breakdown of Chekhov. And what's cool is that he's talking about audience reaction to season one and early season two and how those characters should continue to be written. I found it really fascinating. Uh, and just in particular, I'll throw out a little tidbit here. You'll all have to go back and uh, read the full document yourselves. Um, but he said the, uh, the banter between Spock and McCoy, he said that the audience really loved it, but they hadn't really gone out of their way to write more of it. And he says it's not anybody's fault, but it might have just been a point of, well, they, they wrote it originally. They didn't know what the reaction was. So, hey, can we please get back to that and have a little more of that back and forth between uh, Spock and McCoy? And we certainly get a little bit of it in this episode. Get ready for one of the most egregious red shirt deaths in the history of Star Trek. In the future, everyone in a red shirt will be famous for 15 seconds. Prologue. McCoy is briefing Kirk and Spock and a few others on the Capellans, a big, fast, strong race of knife-throwing, sword-waving warriors with whom Bones spent a few months a while back. He was apparently there to offer medical assistance and training that the Capellans were not interested. They believed that only the strong should survive. Why the alien sociology lesson? Because the Federation would like to strike a mining deal with the Capellans. Not wanting to risk riling their warrior nature, Kirk and Spock decide on a small landing party to meet the Capellans, leaving Scotty in charge of the Enterprise. Careful, though, Scotty. There's word of Klingon ships in these parts of late. Four to beam down, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and some red shirt who is seriously just there to wear the red shirt for 20 seconds or so. The landing party is greeted by a group of Capellans and one Klingon. The red shirt sees the Klingon, identifies him as such, goes for his phaser, and is killed by a Capellan. And all that before the opening credits. Act 1. Kirk's a bit bothered that his crewman is dead. The Klingon feigns indignant, saying... He's not aware of any open state of war between his race and the Federation. Bones asks if Ma'ab, one of the Capellans, is aware that the Klingons have deemed the Federation their sworn enemies. No, what Ma'ab knows is that the Klingons are interested in a mining agreement as well, and that the Klingon has handed over his weapons and communications devices. By the way, let me have your weapons and communications devices. Safely disarmed, the Capellans put the remainder of the landing party in a very nice tent. Kirk wonders what the Klingons are doing there anyway, and whether that means there might be a Klingon ship vexing the Enterprise. Well, guess what? Up there somewhere in orbit, Chekhov has picked up something on sensors. Seems to be another ship, probably Klingon, though too far away to say for sure. Back planet side, Kirk is offered food by a lovely Capellan woman. Sort of a thank you for turning over their weapons. Bone says Kirk shouldn't take it, though, since if he does, he'll have to fight someone to the death. I did say sort of a thank you, didn't I? Off now to meet the Tier Akaar. He seems a sensible fellow and less in the pony play than the rest of the Capellans. And here's the very pregnant Eliane, a young wife to give an old man a son. Before the Tier, the Klingon calls the Federation out for fearing death. But Bones points out that it's just that their cultures are different. Also, the Klingon's a liar. That sets the court to chuckling. Except for Ma'ab, he takes umbrage. He's pretty decidedly on Team Klingon. The Klingon makes his pitch. Humans have brought medicine for the sick. But the Capellans believe, as the Klingons do, the sick should die and only the strong should survive. Go with Team Klingon and they'll teach the children of Capella Four how to really fight. L.E.N. sides openly with the Klingon. Kirk's turn now. He says the Klingon Empire is made up of conquered and pillaged worlds. Go with the Federation and your planet stays yours. Bottom line, says Ma'ab, a lot of us won't deal with the Federation. He and Aka'ar may be fighting soon. Aka'ar says he needs time to think, but it doesn't take long for war to break out between the forces of Aka'ar and Ma'ab. 
post-battle, Akaar is dead, and Ma'ab is the new Tier. Ma'ab now seems on the fence regarding with whom he should go, Federation or Klingon. This may be because he's weighing the responsibility of governance, though it seems more likely that he's just a sadistic pony man. Eliane, as the pregnant widow of the fallen Akaar, knows what has to happen now. She must die. Ma'ab draws a sword, ready to carry out the execution at once, but Kirk pulls Eliane from the blade, which throws everything out of whack. Now they really have to kill her. And Kirk, too. Eliane's one request, kill Kirk first. She deserves to see him die. While all of that's been happening on Capella 4, the Enterprise has seen the mystery ship at the edge of sensor range disappear. Just as it vanishes, Uhura picks up a distress signal. It's from a freighter, under attack by a Klingon vessel. The freighter begs the Enterprise to acknowledge and assist. Unable to raise the landing party, Scotty decides the Enterprise must rush to the freighter's aid. Act 2. Kirk and Spock know that no help is coming from above anytime soon. They miss their appointed contact time and no reinforcements came beaming in. Something must be up, up there. Kirk, Spock, Bones, and Elian are being held captive. Come on, this is Kirk and company. They easily overpower the guards, then put a choice to Elian. She's prepared to die. Does that mean she wants to? To live is always desirable, she says, and so the four make their way away. In space, the Enterprise gets to the side of the fight between the freighter and the Klingon ship, but there's absolutely no sign of a battle, nor of either ship. Back on Capella 4, Kirk, Spock, Bones, and Elian have fled to Vasquez Rocks. I mean, away from the settlement. They were able to retrieve their communicators before escaping, but could not find the phasers. Oh, and Elian hates her unborn baby. Kind of wants it dead. Despite wanting to live, Elian has been resistant to help from McCoy, and he has had enough. He starts yelling at her. He's a doctor. He helps the sick and injured. And suddenly she's kind of into his helping hands. He goes to physically examine her stomach, and she's not into his helping hands. She slaps him and says that she'll not be touched that way. He says he's a doctor and he'll touch her however he deems necessary. She slaps him again. He slaps her back. And oh yeah, you can touch me however you deem necessary. Kirk and Spock, meanwhile, are scouting out defensive positions. Ma'ab's tribe is on the move, but Kirk and Spock use their communicators to create a rock of fire explosion, blocking the closest path. They're safe from Ma'ab and his people for now. Act 3. In the confusion after the rock of fire explosion, the Klingon is able to secretly kill one of the Capellan guards and retrieve one of the Enterprise crew's phasers. Off the survivors go to find another way at Kirk and company. Far away from Capella 4, Scotty realizes how completely he's been duped. The distress call addressed the Enterprise by name. But how could it have known the Enterprise's name? This was an intentional diversion to lure the Enterprise away from Capella 4. They'll stay in search long enough to be sure, but Scotty's pretty sure. Given a few minutes, Scotty decides to head back to Capella 4, ignoring another distress call along the way. Back on the planet, Kirk has found a cave wherein McCoy can deliver Elian's baby. She doesn't want the baby. It belonged to Aka'ar, but Aka'ar is dead. McCoy tries to get her to understand that the child is hers, but she misunderstands, thinking McCoy is assuming responsibility for the baby. The child, she says, is his. McCoy delivers the baby as Kirk and Spock fashion bows and arrows out of the local fauna. They come in to see the child, which Elian has deemed theirs, hers, and McCoy's. A bit later, Elian hits a dozing McCoy on the back of the head, making him good and unconscious, and then making her escape sans baby. Once awake, McCoy alerts Kirk and Spock to Elian's disappearance. They decide to go after her, since she will likely go immediately to Ma'ab and the warriors. Along its way back to Capella 4, the Enterprise is intercepted by a Klingon ship directly in its path. They go to red alert as we go to commercial. Act 4. Uhura cannot get any response from the Klingon vessel. Scotty is loaded for bear and presses ahead. On Capella 4, Kirk and Spock lie in wait for Ma'ab and his troops, but Elian intercepts them. She says the child is dead and offers herself up to Ma'ab's judgment. She says the Earthmen are dead as well. She killed them, she says. The Klingon says he wants proof, though she says her word needs no verification, invoking her status as the wife of a Tier. Ma'ab agrees and turns to head home, but the Klingon will have none of it. He draws his recently acquired phaser and goes to check her story, and is shot in the leg by one of Kirk's arrows. This totally surprises Ma'ab and company, partly I'd imagine because Elian had said that they were dead, but also because they never figured out the whole bow and arrow thing. And now arrows are flying, and Capellans are falling. The Klingon shoots at Spock with his phaser but misses. He does hit one of the Capellans, though, 
and now Kirk really wants that Klingon dead. Conferring with Ma'ab, Elian offers herself as a sacrifice. She'll draw the Klingon's fire, and Ma'ab can kill him. But Ma'ab instead gives Elian her life back. His is now forfeit. He draws the Klingon's fire and is killed. But the diversion allows one of his soldiers to throw a killing knife into the chest of the Klingon. Kirk and Spock head down into an uneasy standoff with the Capellan warriors, but Scotty and a crew of red shirts arrive and disarm the Capellans. Out comes McCoy with the baby... There's a bit of banter about baby talk, and we're off of Capella 4. Kirk notifies Starfleet that a mining deal has been reached with the Capellans, with Elian ruling as a representative of the new Tier, the baby, Leonard James Akaar. Spock figures this will make Kirk and McCoy insufferable for at least a month. The end. Ken, I really have to hand it to you. Yeah, your you, your yeah. Capellan pronunciation Dude, is great. You get to do the next four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that no, was I'm, just. I'm, I'm being serious, man. You you speak Capellan like a native. That that's the trick. You put in an extra vowel. It's like it's like to a, make it alien. Yeah, it's half dude, half porpoise. Actually, <laughs> okay. No, it's a good job. And, and by Thank the way, you. is it Klingon or Klingon? Yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, they keep going back. But I, I imagine. All right, here's my. Uh, <laughs> by the time we imp- get to the movies, we'll decide. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, see, I, I picture somewhere in the back of my twisted mind. It's you know Shatner on the set getting the script, and he sees the words, you know, the, the letters K L I N G O N, and he just starts saying it Klingon, and somebody says, "No, it's Klingon." Um, and there's a little bit of back and forth, and he says, "No, no, because I'm Canadian, not not Canadian." <laughs> you know? so I'm, oh. I'm thinking there was a justification there. Oh, of come how on. to pronounce it? Is it come on or come on? Come, come on. on, come on, come on, come on! All right, <laughs> come on, whatever. Um, hey, where are the Organians when you need them? Man, they they could have stepped in and just taken care of this whole thing uh, between the Klingon Klingons and the Federation. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of well, you, you miss a lot of the godlike races when you get stuck in this kind of thing. Although there's some interesting stuff we'll get to in a bit. Um, diplomacy has its day here in kind of a weird way. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of other weird stuff first, like like Kirk being really upset, you know, for how diplomatic he's going to be and how yeah. diplomatic he has been in recent episodes. Really upset about the death of his red shirt. I mean, he doesn't yeah. get it. And I'll, I'll say I'm with him. Grant was mm-hmm. the nameless red shirt's name, by the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, all Grant did was draw a phaser on one of the guests of the Capellans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Kirk is like, I mean, he's 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 uber angry about that. Right. Like, like, as as if, you know, it's, it's almost like he had just bitten his thumb at him, you know, as opposed I, yeah, to actually yeah. drawing a weapon. Because, cause, you know, th- this young firebrand is drawing a weapon here. Who knows who he's going to shoot? Right. Yeah. I think the Capellans were completely in their right to do that. And, I, and I, I agree. Yeah. Had he not died, he should have been booted from the Enterprise. But right. I guess it's wrong to speak ill of the dead, even the you know, even the ones that you know as soon as you see them are gonna be dead. <laughs> gonna when, be dead. when four <laughs> beamed down and one of them was a red shirt that wasn't Kyle or Scotty. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, you pretty much know that's it. But this is kind of a, a, a high action, high testosterone kind of episode. In fact, you know, the fight scenes just seem to come out of nowhere. Uh, they'll just be walking along and then boom, time for another fight scene. So there's that's, a lot of that. That's interesting because it struck me as being a very not, not, there are fights and there are epic fights, but not mm-hmm. a lot of them. It's not fight, fight, fight all the way through. No, it's not. A, well, I, I feel like there's a lot. All right. <laughs> but, really? Because I felt yeah, like there was a lot of talk yeah. in this episode. I, I think you and I might be on different sides of how this episode goes, but, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, I got to say, there's one thing I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Did Akaar just get old? I'm not sure how he became Tier, because you get there and he's like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sensible. Yeah. And a bit sentimental. And you don't really get that sense from any of the other Capellans. Right. <laughs> you know, the Klingons right. like, uh, you know, we will teach your kids uh, to smash people. And 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 the Tier's wife is like, oh, the Klingon makes a good point. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Ma'ab, meanwhile, is like, yeah, yeah I just kind of want to beat somebody up. Yeah. It mostly seems to be what he's about to start to finish. And yet Akaar is all like, oh, you know, we had to deal with the Earth people before we had to deal with the Klingons. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe we should honor that, which is, you know, very much not Klingon. <laughs> well, I kind of gave it a pass for two reasons, because, yes, he is old. Yeah. So you figure that he has matured into his position. Old. He's bit. probably like 50. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, we don't know on that planet. That's true. That's yeah, yeah. true. Um, but, but the other thing is that I, I also figure that this race, the, the, this society has endured – for some time, because there are sensible people there yeah. who, who do things other than just fight at the drop of a hat. So every now and then, you've got to have somebody who, uh, who can kind of hold it together. Do you uh, wanna, but yeah, he, he was sensible. Do you yeah. want to address really quickly, I, I mentioned it jokingly in the thing, but do you want to address uh, really quickly the, the, the benefit of the pony costumes? And also, <laughs> and also why it is that, uh, that Aka-R is not wearing one? <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> he he's not Tier. I mean, he is yeah. Tier. Excuse me. And yeah, um, yeah. and um, Maab is not Tier. Mm-hmm. But then he becomes Tier, and and still he wears the pony costume. He does, yeah. which is not. It, it's not. He, they're not really With dressed the, like ponies, but <laughs> well, they they got the flat top hat and they got the the long uh, they got the long locks ponytail yeah. coming out of the right. top of the hat. And then yeah, um, yeah they've also there's also the lines of fur. That are kind of mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's pony play. <laughs> but before before we had a name for it, right, right. Um, a couple of other things to uh, to point out here. You know, I I stopped mentioning where the voiceovers, where the captain's log got weird, mm-hmm. but in this one, I just find it particularly sloppy. Um, the, there's a scene where you're heading into the mountains where they've got Elian, and um, and then suddenly there's exposition. Kirk's like, oh, and by the way, she hates her child. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it, I have to wonder if this is stuff that had originally been written as action because the the rule with TV is show don't tell, and now we're just falling back on tell 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 tell. Yeah, uh, hey, so how, I found that weird. How about watching Scotty do the captain's log though? Yeah, I liked him in this. It's kind of fun. I mean, it's yeah, cool enough, yeah. but I mean, watching him do it—that's the thing. Yeah. Normally, the captain's log is voiceover, and we come back and and there's Scotty right. standing on the bridge, looking off into nowhere. You know, yes, talking I, I to no one. A, a couple episodes ago, I can't remember which one, but he's standing, looking off into the distance. Well, no, but but I mean that's different because now he's actually he's monologuing. Right, right. <laughs> do you yeah. like, do you have to tell the bridge? Okay, shh. I'm gonna do the captain's <laughs> right. logs. Everybody, be quiet, okay? Just you know, <laughs> turn turn your communicators to vibrate for a minute because you know this is this is the record. I'm doing the record here, and then somebody walks up in the middle and hands him something to sign. And so he stops, but he doesn't pause the captain's log. And I wonder, yeah, like, yeah, you know, a right. hundred years from now when they're going back and listening. And by the way, do they do that? Do they oh, go back and listen to every captain's yeah, log? Yeah. When they're listening, they're like, why is he pausing? Did he forget what he was going to say? Is, did <laughs> somebody, what, did he spill something? What happened? Can we get, can we get like a supplemental captain's log to find out why? Right. Yeah. And get the Telosians to replay that for us, maybe. <laughs> Assuming hey, they're still monitoring the Enterprise. I don't know. It's not necessarily a safe uh, right. assumption. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have communicators, yep. they can blow up rock. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but your ears are going to be just fine, even if you're three feet away. That was kind of crazy, too, wasn't it? Spock yeah. was like, I think we can create a rock slide. What'll happen mm-hmm. is these will sort of like vibrate the rocks like out a little bit, and they'll slide down here. Except they blew up. And Except they blew, they blew up. up. Yeah, it was like, it was like <laughs> yeah. some of those rocks that they were feeding Vol. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, that really yeah. Vasquez is a, Vasquez is a is a very um well it's 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 a very mutable place. It I mean, is. despite how old those rocks are, they can they can pretty much be and do whatever you need or want them to. Mm-hmm. What'd you think about that scene where McCoy gets slapped and then slaps back? Um Remember Mag- was it MacGyver's who went off with Khan? Uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> really you thought of that <laughs> no nah, a tiny bit i mean there's it yeah. it is interesting uh points to lee mary uh, not lee Merriweather. she is the other one points to julie, julie newmar, newmar. Yeah, yeah because she's not given a lot to really you know she's not given a lot of monologue here i mean she's mm-hmm. you know she's given a weird accent and she has to pronounce things kind of weird like you know she's she sort of starts to fall for mccoy right but I mean, but just just in the way she carries herself. I mean, she goes from being angry to to being somewhere between respectful and turned on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, you yeah, being a Southern gentleman, you know, like the last thing that McCoy is ever going to think to do is hit a woman. Yeah, the only thing that's going to make him do that is if he's not able to do you know what he needs to do, which is be a doctor. 
not a guy who right. doesn't hit women. <laughs> so. Well, and, and he understands their ways. He, he understands their society. So it's like, well, if a violent turn here deserves another violent turn, he's going to do it. Well, we'll have to get to that in a moment. We will. You're skipping um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's interesting that the Capellans here, uh, they live very primitively by our standards. You know, they, they haven't learned to make bows and arrows. They have the, the knife thing that they can whiz away and kill a red shirt from 100 paces. Um, but they are totally okay with people in spaceships coming to visit them. Yes. So you really have to wonder what the what that first contact was like. <laughs> You know? Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't get the... That's interesting. I didn't get the sense that they... Well, we don't see any wagons, though, either. That's interesting. So we don't know that they have the wheel, but they do have the ability to make fire and find fabrics, too. Right. And in fact, they can make a good fireplace. I mean, they've got a fire pit in the the tent. I'm sure that's going to be fine. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) But yeah, no bow and arrow. I don't know. They just haven't come across it. That's That's kind of a weird thing. Yeah, but but then people beam down in front of them. They're like, "Oh, okay, here comes the uh, people from the Federation." All right, yeah. <laughs> you know, no big deal. Um, and finally, gosh, I, I'm so glad to see that the Federation gets their mining rights because there's a lot of mining to do in the future. There is, there and is. Uh, I hope they don't screw up this planet. It's like the rare earths thing, man. You know, mm-hmm. they're everywhere, and you hardly even think about it. But then one day you run out, and all of a sudden you got to find more. So yes, they're all over the place. This was one we hadn't heard of for uh, heard of before, though. I assumed it was going to be more dilithium crystals. Um, right. Topolime. Topolime Top. is what this is, which is right. actually they need for uh, life support systems. Which makes me wonder what it was that we were digging for on the planet with the Horda, because that was also for life support systems. I can't remember mm-hmm. what it was. I don't think it was Topolime, right? Because um, if it was, you know, we got plenty of that now from from planet Horda. Right. <laughs> it's the craze that's sweeping this quadrant of the galaxy, the Capellan name game. Let's do Ken. Kien, Kien, Bo, Bien, Banana, Vanna, Bo, Fien, Me, My, Mo, Mien, Kien. Let's do John, Jeon, Jeon, Bo, Beon, Banana, Vanna, Bo, Beon, Me, My. I mentioned McCoy a moment ago in our observations on the show, and uh, just particularly with that scene with him and uh, Elian. And it, but it brings me to uh, kind of a bigger thing about this episode. I really like seeing McCoy with something to do. It's a great episode for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he is the expert on these people, um, and he gets to step up to the plate with Elian. Um, he's the one who calls out the Capellan sexism. <laughs> to, to Elian uh, about men taking credit for everything, uh, including the baby. Um, and I, I found it an interesting choice that he's the one on the Enterprise who is briefing Kirk and Spock. And he has that great, great moment when they beam down and they, they've kind of made a mess of it at first and they're addressing Aka'ar. <laughs> and McCoy, with this very pleased look on his face, tells the captain, I just called the Klingon a liar. No, I, actually, it's, the one before that, where it's uh-huh. not even like, you know, Captain, with your permission, he's just like, I'll take this, Jim. Right, right, right. <laughs> and he does a little salute, and he just walks right off. Yeah. yeah. Really? You'll I, take this? Because I'm, you know, you're, you're kind of undermining my authority right this right. second. I'm, right. I'm like, talking for us. No, yeah. but you go ahead, please. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're a diplomat, not a... Du- Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait. Yeah. I got to say one thing really quickly before you before you go on. Um, mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. great that he is the expert. May I suggest uh, maybe a presentation class? Because so there they are in their tent, right? And mm-hmm. this woman comes and brings food. And right. Bones is like, oh, look, she's offering you food. It's kind of a gesture, you know, as a thank you for, for yeah, turning yeah. over your weapons. And so Kirk's like, oh, cool. So he goes to reach for the fruit. And he's like, oh, oh, oh don't touch it, though. Don't take the food that she's offering as a thanks because then somebody's going to have to die. Right. I'm thinking that's right. the kind of thing you say before you go down. Well, that's interesting. They're in the briefing room, and he's talking about how they're seven feet tall, and they're they're really good with their weapons, and he should have included in there, and don't 
touch the women. I'm yeah. looking at you, Captain Kirk. <laughs> that would be that would be a good thing to say. And also, he what he said was he didn't say they're seven feet tall. He said seven feet is not uncommon. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Now apparently, right around the tier, seven feet mm. is uncommon. <laughs> right. Because right. there was nobody was seven feet tall. There was no ruck. There was no you know. Um, guys who were keeping the planet down or keeping the uh, Galileo down in Galileo seven. Right. They're, you know, I'd say they're probably a good six and a half feet, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, they they grow shorter in these parts of Capella four. Well, the actor playing mob, uh, I remember I looked it up. He was six foot two, (laughs) which is taller than the other, uh, than our main cast members. It's taller than Shatner and Nimoy and, uh, D Kelly. Uh, but yeah. And then they, they give him the flat top hat with the ponytail. Yeah, and that adds easily another six inches, and you're still not seven feet tall. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the thing for me here is that, it, particularly centered around McCoy, you have a real attempt at addressing cultural differences mm-hmm. and uh, and the customs um, and the, the details and negotiating with them. Because mm-hmm. we usually skip over that yes. in Star Trek. We, we kind of... Is the idea like, oh, yeah, they're, they're different, they're alien. But there's no real attempt to figure that out before you get there right. and then negotiate it and navigate it while you're on that planet. Um, so I'm glad that we're hopefully starting this trend where there's a little uh, a little attempt to figure that out. That is pretty cool. That is pretty mm-hmm. cool. You're right, because usually they'll pick up like a catchphrase or two. You know, like, right. Are you right. of the body? Am I? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, maybe. I don't know. Yes. I <laughs> yeah, love totally. the, that sounds like totally that would be a good body. thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, there, there are actually a couple of interesting things as, as far as that goes. I mean, I, I joked about, you know, why the sociology lesson, but I'm not sure that this is a society that would normally pass muster as far as Kirk is concerned. I mean, witness yeah. the fact they haven't come up with bow and arrows yet, bows and arrows right. yet, um, except that they have something that the Federation needs, right? We need mm-hmm. um, top of line. It turns out, and you can't just get that anywhere. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of things that they're now forced to do. I mean, they can't just go in and use force, and they can't just go in and sort of, you know, trick their way through it. And sadly, there's no computer to blow up, so you know, they might be at a loss. <laughs> there are two things that kind of came to mind here. There, there's a little bit of when in Rome, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Kirk will destroy a society in a heartbeat, but like I say, you know, this one is either apparently thriving enough, or just because they have something that they need, they have to, you know, kind of figure out how to how to move through so kirk won't do what he would normally do he won't touch the ladies he'll turn over their weapons and communicators i mean he really is he's being in a way more of a diplomat but a different kind of diplomat Mm -hmm. he's not doing the whole you know dressed in his finest and making all sorts of promises i mean he goes he makes the federation case but he's also he's very much not acting the way kirk would normally act until he sees that elian is you know literally about to die yeah I mean, he pulls her from the blade at that point right. and figuring that, okay, well, I mean, they were kind of on the losing side anyway, the Klingon or the Klingon uh, sort, of, <laughs> sort of had the upper hand. But I mean, there's no way he's going to let her die. I mean, you know, the Federation needs uh, top of line. They can get it someplace else. He's not going to stand there and watch this woman die, even if she, uh, even if she thinks it's what she has to do. Now, mm-hmm. almost counter the one in Rome thing. The other, I guess, biggest lesson that I picked up from this episode, assuming there is a lesson to be had, mm-hmm. treat people as they should be treated, not as they expect to be treated in a way. Or maybe when you expect the most of someone and treat them as if you expect the most of somebody, they're going to live up to that expectation. Mm. Elian feels she has to die. She doesn't want to, but she feels like she has to. And as deeply held as her belief in her society is, you know, she's going to submit to dying. Um, she comes to a point where she doesn't think that the landing party has to die. Now, their laws say that the landing party has to die because, you know, two of them now have touched her in, right, right. in ways that are inappropriate. And they're inappropriate because they're not allowed to touch her at all. Two of them yeah. have. And yet she comes to a place because they have actually – because of the way they've acted, because they've acted in a way that, you know, they expect the best of her. She, mm-hmm. you know, she then is going to – she's going to go ahead and do what she feels like she has to do, but she doesn't feel like that has to be applied to them anymore. In fact, she's willing to hasten her death, which we know she doesn't want. She has said to live is always desirable. She doesn't want to die, but she's willing to hasten her death to give them a chance to live. So, I mean, there seemed to be kind of a, is it a message? Is it a moral? I'd say it's more a moral than a message. I mean, by, by, it's that whole thing, you know, if you expect the kid to be bad or if you expect the dog to be bad, and if you treat them as if they're going to be bad, 
then they're going to be bad, generally speaking, because they pick up on it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you treat a kid, let's say, I don't want to liken children to dogs. It's because I have a dog, not a kid. I mean, if you treat a child like a grown-up, I mean, a lot of times they'll surprise you and act like a grown-up. Yeah. It's like if you were to, say, use a poem to uh, uh, assign terrible character traits to children before you got to know them. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Why do you hate that so much? Why do you hate I just, I don't even know. Now, do you have a problem Uh, with all nursery rhymes or is it just that one? No, I think it's just that one. So if I bust out Mary Had a Little Lamb, you're not going to go crazy on me. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Now, I I, I think that what's interesting here about what you're saying is is that to me, it kind of goes back to this diplomacy thing. You know, the Enterprise crew have scratched the surface of understanding the Capellans. You know, it's helpful that McCoy is there and he knows some of the details, but This is still a very surface level thing, but what we find then through Elian and then later through Ma'ab is that their honor, their sense of honor runs deep and then their sense of uh, sacrifice runs deep as well. So as alien as it is at first, by the time I get to the end of the story, we, we now have two of these people who are putting their lives on the line to save others and um and that that's a revelation to the enterprise crew definitely because at first it was all just kill 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 fight 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 what do you think it was that precipitated the change in ma'ab i mean was it the fact that he had placed so much faith in his dealing with the klingon and the klingon ended up being untrustworthy or was it suddenly being handed governance i mean he says at one point perhaps mm-hmm. being tier is to see things differently I mean, was it yeah. just suddenly having the mantle of uh, of of governance thrust upon him? Well, well, taking it actually, it's not say thrust upon him. Yeah, yeah. He, or was it the fact took, that he got screwed by the Klingon? I, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I, I think he got screwed over by the Klingon. He he saw their true nature, yeah. which was not honorable right. <laughs> by by the the conniving that the uh, Klingon was doing. Um, I think he also saw. Uh, hopefully, e- even though we, we understand the Capellans, uh, how is it McCoy phrased it, that they find making war more pleasurable than love? Yes, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they were also in kind of a difficult situation there. there. There was already a lot of blood being spilled. Kirk and Spock were taking down those Capellans pretty handily with the bow and arrow. Yeah. This might have been a bad situation for them. And, uh, you know, maybe reason would also dictate, well, okay, the, this is the first of a group or multiple groups of spacefaring citizens that will show up here, you know. Oh, and by the way, now we have to answer for a dead Klingon as well. <laughs> Just wait till they show up, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, they're not showing up, though. Oh, well, no, not, I mean, not now. Scotty not now. Just, like, bowled straight through them. Right. Apparently. He actually said they didn't have the stomach for fighting, so I assume that they backed down. Yeah, that's kind of weird. That's well, we, we haven't really – we haven't really. it's interesting because uh, timeline, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, the Klingons are a more proud, more warlike race, I think, once you get to the movies, once you get to, um, mm-hmm. once you get to the motion picture and beyond. Yeah. Um, they, they're a little closer to Ferengi. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. That the, the Klingons in later Trek are are honorable and yes. warlike. The Klingons now and really typified in. Um, oh gosh, I, I'm thinking of John Colicos, uh playing Krug, and the name of the episode is escaping me. Uh, but <laughs> wow. he, he you know, is I'm conniving. the wrong person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 he is uh, very conniving, and that seems to be a character trait. Yes, in, uh, in these Klingons, yeah, and one that will one that will go away certainly by uh, if not by the movies, then definitely by the next generation. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great question that you have about um, how. Oh, by the way, the name of the episode is "Errand of Mercy." Nice. Yeah, we're working on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the question is, yeah, why does Mob have the change of heart? Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to say. We, we can see the process in Eliane yes. because she's been around McCoy a lot and, and they're, they're kind of breaking each other down. Right. Which is the nice thing to see in this episode. Mob, I don't know, but it, it works as an ending. Yeah, it does. So, that yeah. works pretty well. I mean, I mm-hmm. kind of wish he had charged the Klingon rather than just, you know, standing yeah. there to take it. I mean, that would have been yeah. a, a bit more. 
Although that, I mean, that definitely does typify the change. You're right. I mean, he's mm-hmm. not he's not thinking he's going to get one up on the Klingon. I mean, he is sacrificing himself. He is doing oh, uh, absolutely exactly yeah. what he has to do. There's there's not even a moment of thinking how am I going to get out of this one? Yeah, right. no, you're not. And so, <laughs> yeah. Although you know, points off to Klingon who never got a name, did he? No, he doesn't. Yeah, um, yeah. Points yeah. off to Klingon for not seeing that coming. <laughs> right. You know. Right. Wow, he's just going to leave himself open there. I'm going to shoot him and then not even worry about what else is going on around me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Because he's got a whole he's got a whole lot of warriors standing right there with him. <laughs> so yeah, kind of a neat, kind of a neat, um, yeah, kind of a neat change to see in Ma'ab. Sadly, uh, I guess. Well, I guess the next T.R. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what that society is going to become. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe we'll find out one day. I mean, we're going to be there mining from now on. Yeah. Um, oh, and by the way, the, the Klingon does have a name, actually. It's Kras, K-R-A-S, but that was never revealed in the episode. I, I believe that you, was... You're just making it up? No, 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 I'm not making it up. <laughs> okay. uh, that, that was, uh, I believe it's originally sourced to a script note, but you, you're okay. right. He is never called by name in the episode. No, he is Klingon. He is clean all up. the way through. That's like that's like his first, last, middle, like Madonna or, or Sting. Yeah, Klingon or Klingon, Klingon, Klingon. Yeah, whichever. Yeah. Uh, um, one thing that kind of bothered me in this episode, um, mm-hmm. the there's there's a bit of reverse psychology. Although I think it would re- actually be like um, from the complete idiot's guide to reverse psychology, <laughs> um, from Kirk's book on how to win friends and influence people. Play Love to their play to their vanity. That's pretty much yeah. it, in a way. So, so they're talking about whether or not they can make you know all the rocks in Vasquez explode, which is actually not what they're talking about. They're talking about can they you know create a rock slide? Maybe this is what maybe this is why they exploded. Actually, I mean maybe maybe Spock stepped it up a notch. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you because he's like, okay, so am I right in thinking that we could you know create some sort of subsonic something or other that would vibrate the rock so we get a rock slide? Says Kirk, and Spock says, eh, that'd be tough. And Kirk's like, well, if you can't do it, I didn't say that. And so he goes to it and, of course, makes the rocks explode. Uh, same kind of thing happens with Bones when he's right. talking about oh, yeah, compelling uh, physiology or you know, anatomy. Different. Yeah. Well, if you can't deliver the baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shut up. I can deliver the baby. Just stay away from me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah kind of I mean, like these guys are five. I, I know, right? <laughs> well, if you don't think you can clean up your room, <laughs> I can clean up my room. Yeah, okay. And, and the the question, the answer to that question about can McCoy deliver a baby? Yes, he can, and he can do it in about two minutes. Yeah, and just walk out with a big smile on his face, and uh, his hands are not dirtied at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's a really good doctor, and remember that scene. He could tell that she was about to give birth just by touching her. Yeah. Even the women of Capella can't do that. No, but McCoy can do it. He's that good. He's a he's he's a well, he's a doctor, not a diplomat by <laughs> by this point in the show. <laughs> I apologize. I seem to have picked up a slight glitch in my vocal processor. I blame the Capellan name game. Maybe I could and work it out while Kian and Jeon wrap up the show. So I don't know what you were expecting from this particular episode of Mission Log, John, but first watching, I wasn't overly into this episode, and yet there's stuff about it that I, that I kind of like. But let's, I mean, let's back up a little bit. There are messages, morals, and meanings, or at least we look for messages, morals, and meanings in each episode. Uh, do you think we found any here? Um, not particularly. <laughs> I think we did an interesting exploration of, um, uh, like you said, kind of the win in Rome uh, how do we approach uh, uh, an alien society? And mm-hmm. a- alien, of course, in Star Trek means aliens. <laughs> but in real life, we're just talking about dealing with people that we uh, we don't necessarily know or understand right off the bat. I think that's all very interesting to look at. Um, but I, I don't get the feeling like there is a big, heavy-handed moral or meaning or message here. We're watching diplomacy at play. Mm-hmm. And we're also watching the characters at play, like you mentioned, Kirk sort of manipulating his crew <laughs> with the reverse psychology. Um, we're watching uh, a new side of McCoy, which is cool. I really think that he kind of owns in this episode. Um, but 
I, I don't feel like this is an episode heavy on meaning. Mm. Um, how about you? Well, I mean, I'm I'm sort of happy with uh, the thing that we found about um, Julie Newmar's character, uh, mm-hmm. who, who I've already started to forget. Elian. Yeah, Elian. Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm sort of happy, you know, the whole thing about if you expect more from people, then they'll deliver. It's not always true, certainly. I mean, I mean, uh, the uh the Capellans expected the Klingon to be honorable. Mm-hmm. And the Klingon was not honorable. So that's not always going to work out for you, but I do I sort of like I mean, I like those kind of messages. I like when you expect I I like when, you know, it's eh, it's not quite with great power comes great responsibility kind of thing. But basically, if you if you expect the best from people, you know, there's a chance they're going to show up for it because they certainly could have just they could have just, you know, held Elian at the end of a pointed stick for the whole episode. And what they right. would have gotten was, you know, ferocity and what they would have gotten was, you know, biting and trying to escape. And when she went to Ma'ab, she would not have then said, no, they're dead. Don't worry about them. Let's go and, you know, let's go and take right. care of me and, you know, let society continue as it is. She would have gone back and said, they're up there behind the rocks. You know, right. so, I, I mean, I kind of right. like the, I kind of like the, the idea and the illustration. You know, don't treat somebody like they're going to steal your purse. <laughs> don't, don't treat <laughs> yeah. a kid like he's not going to clean up his room. You know, don't treat don't treat the guy next to you as if he's going to try to get it over on you. Treat him like, you know, treat him like, you know, like you'd want to be treated. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. It's the golden rule. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe yeah. that's it. And so I'm yeah. kind of I'm kind of OK seeing that at the same time. You know, they do point out that it's not always going to work out. Witness what happened with the Klingon. Yeah, well, and we get these level of surprise at the end with uh, – you know, Elian eventually turning and, and helping them. And mm-hmm. of course, Maab's ultimate sacrifice. So, yeah, they, they are surprised by how it turns out. And, and if we do indeed chalk that up to um, uh, Kirk and his crew treating them with respect and holding them to the high standard, then then great. Maybe that's maybe that was all the influence that, that they needed. So the so the two messages that we might be able to take from this episode are mm-hmm. do unto others mm-hmm. and, and pay it forward. Oh yeah, there you go. They they, they kind of work together. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, where's my insulin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, well, but I think that, but I actually do think that those are two things that you can apply to this episode. Yeah. Yeah. So so what about the production? And and, and how about learn a little about where you're going? Oh well, there is that too. <laughs> You know, I, I, I like that. Learn the language, at maybe, least a few phrases. Maybe learn a tiny bit more, though. Than I mean, don't you know? Don't take me to. Well, don't take me to Capella, and just you know. <laughs> it was like a choose your own adventure. It was like Bones was running his own choose your own adventure. It's like, oh, she's bringing you food. Do you take it or do you not? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you take it, turn to this page. If you don't, turn to this page. Oh, oh, oh! Don't don't do the one where you take it. Uh, so the production, you're asking me. I did uh, ask you about the production, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, boy, I, I hate to disappoint. But here's the thing. I, I feel like the pacing is really weak. We we go from these long moments of dull chatter to these sudden moments of fighting. And yeah, it's not like Arena where you've got an 11-minute fight scene. You just have these sort of random fights that, that break out. Or the 22-minute bar fight in Trouble with Troubles. <laughs> right, yeah. And then you've got, uh, I feel like, character motivations that are all over the map. Now, they do kind of bring it home at the end, but um, I, I just feel like it, it's kind of a mess. Um I'd be more interested if I felt like the episode were really about the cultural differences and how you navigate that. Um, but ultimately, it seems like this episode is really about Kirk winning and outsmarting the enemy. You know, there, there's so much emphasis on that, um, it, that the other kind of cultural differences is just sort of a little backdrop there to make it alien. So to me, the episode does not really hold up. Hmm. As, as a production. You know, I'm hmm. glad that we found what we found. I'm glad that we were able to talk about what we were able to talk about. But I just feel like it suffers from being dull and, um, and really uh, uh, lacking in focus and direction. See, I think it depends on what you like. I, I did not dislike this episode as much as you did. I mean, what I would say is this is probably not going to be on anybody's top ten list unless, unless they're related to somebody that's in the episode. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But I didn't think it sucked either. I mean, it really it, – it feels to me like it's, a, it's fine. 
This episode is fine. Now, I actually like it a little bit more than some of the episodes that you've liked more because mm. I'm a weirdo in that uh, – this is going to be terrible. And sorry for crossing the streams. I like the first <laughs> the, the first three episodes of the Star Wars movies, not in general. I think mostly they bite. Mm. But I like the political intrigue that goes all the way through them. And so to watch the diplomacy in action here and even sort of the subtle diplomacy of, well, I'm going to give him my weapons. And that, you know, that's not, not normally what you would think of as diplomacy, but it is. I kind of enjoyed seeing that. Now, mm-hmm. is it as well done as we will see in future, you know, incarnations of Star Trek? Absolutely not. Right. But it's sort of like, you know, in any given season in real life on television, there is very little science fiction. And so I'll end up sitting through bad science fiction on TV because it's on TV. And it, mm-hmm. it's neat mm-hmm. to see science fiction on TV, even if it sucks. Um, so I think I'm kind of the same way in this episode. This might not be as full a presentation of how we deal with other cultures as you might want. This might not be as full a presentation of, you know, of, of how diplomacy, how subtle diplomacy can actually work to your benefit. Right. But you get so little of that in Star Trek. I mean, the fact that they didn't go down and say, you guys aren't building crap. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take over your society. I mean, the fact that there's actually enough there to respect that they figure out how to work in it and with it rather than over it or through it. Sure. um, I really appreciated that part of it. So I personally think it works. There's also something... There's something weird about the light in this episode, and I don't know if it's because they were shooting outside or what it was, but there's like a there's an older feel to to the look of this episode than you get in a number of episodes. It probably has to do with shooting outside. Well, you, you jump back and forth a lot between studio and location. Yeah, uh, sometimes within the same scene, and it's very jarring. But yes. then a lot of the location stuff is very blown out. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, it there's something about for a, honestly, there's something about that that's pretty to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, yeah. I don't think it's good as far as consistency is concerned, but there's something about that that's pretty to me. Plus, you're at Vasquez Rocks. I I mm-hmm. personally think this episode, if you're a Star Trek fan, definitely holds up. Um, it is not one to show somebody first. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I came across sounding like I really hate this episode. I, I and and you're you're right. I don't. I don't hate this as much as other episodes that we have come across that we've really kind of bashed. Um, things right. like Alternative Factor or whatever. You know, it, it's definitely not in that category at all. What is it all. with me loving the, the episodes that you hate? I, I don't know. I'm a fan of know. Alternative Factor. I, and and yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I mean, maybe yeah. it's the subtlety. I don't know. I, I um, Yeah, good point that. Hmm. <laughs> Worth considering. I, I, uh, right, right. I, I just consider this one to be um, – yeah, the things that you pointed out, they're good first steps. I, I like the idea that we will see Kirk trying to be a diplomat because uh, it was the episode where McCoy calls him out for being a diplomat and, and a soldier. Maybe you're acting too much like a soldier, you know. Uh, um, metamorphosis. Let, oh, me, uh, let, let me stun everybody yeah, good job. by good being job. able to name an episode for you. Metamorphosis was when he good. said that. Good, good. Um, <laughs> so, so there are moments like that that I really like about this. I, I just find that as a production, it, it's not built in the way that good Star Trek episodes are built. I, I didn't feel uh, sort of like the anticipation of oh, what's going to happen by the end here. You know, All right. so, um, yeah, so for those reasons, it didn't hold up for me. Um, but I love McCoy in this. I will say that. And I, I love the uh, I love the first steps we're taking kind of on this path of, of seeing dealing with other cultures. But overall, um, I'm saying that it doesn't hold up for me. Well, OK, I disagree. And it's quite possible that there are people out there. Well, I would say it's a guarantee that there are people out there who either agree or disagree with you as well. <laughs> so I think what we should invite them to do is get in touch with us, and there are a few ways they can do that. Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. The handle is uh, Mission Log Pod on any one of those things, or they can call us, or you can call us. I mean, I'm going to stop talking to you, John, and start talking to them. All right. People, lean in and listen close. If you want to call us, uh, 323-522-5641, 323-522-5641 is the phone number to do that. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. That, again, is missionlog at roddenberry.com. We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, and we would also love it if you would check out our uh, home home on the web, missionlogpodcast.com. Next week, 
getting old is a pain. And the Enterprise crew finds out just how much of a pain in The Deadly Years. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but don't shed a tear, we will speak again next week. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.